Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 16, The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle's classic masterpiece of mystery, suspense, and horror, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Some revolting sacrificial rite has been performed. What depth a human being can sink to. What human being could have done this? That is precisely what I intend to find out. Be so certain that somebody took one of the bishop's spiders and deliberately placed it in Sir Henry's room, that it wasn't in the luggage he brought from South Africa. Elementary, my dear Watson, there are no tarantulas in South Africa. What do you want me to do? Identify anything I may find. Strange things are to be found on the moor. Like this, for instance. was going to be easy, didn't you? Didn't you? You won't be the first of your family who thought that. And you won't be the first to die because of it. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we are going to take a look at one piece of literature that we've both read, discuss it, critique it, and determine whether or not it is worthy of its reputation and place in the canon. As always, I'm Tom Panneries, and I am joined by my ever so sleuthy co-host the homes to my watson of course <laughs> stella how are you hey i am well that's funny that i'm Holmes and you're watson mm. i would almost think it's the opposite i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> you were just putting an intro together you it just it just it, it rolls off the tongue better <laughs> so i don't i'm not i'm not that good i'm not the world's greatest detective I see. So, well, so, some would say not. Me? 
What? Sorry? What, what version are we doing? I know. What's his name? Something. Rathbone. Was, Basil, um, Basil yes. Rathbone. And then, of course, you've got the, the updated version. What version <laughs> is your preferred? Um, I think if I'm going by my wife's standards, I would be Johnny Lee Miller because she's always had a thing for him oh. ever since Train Spotting. Uh-huh. But I guess, yeah, so, I, so I'm going to defer to Amanda's taste in men, which is usually pretty solid. Uh, you're just saying that. No, she's, I mean, we've got a list that runs from like, runs like Paul Rudd, John Hamm, Chris Evans. It's a pretty, that's a pretty good list. How about you? Plus, I'm not um, a big Holmes person, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I've really been liking the Sherlock series mm-hmm. with um, Doctor Strange. Benedict and, Cumberbatch, or as, yes. or as Andy Leyland likes to call him, Benedict Cumberbund. Cumberbund, yeah. And, of course, Martin Freeman, who was in War of the Rings, and Marvel. He must be making Buku Bucks. But, no, I've I've enjoyed that a great deal. I don't know how much other Sherlock Holmes I've actually watched, but I'm pretty sure I've seen some Rathbone. Hmm. Um, so, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll intro to the book, because like, we're, we're pretty much... <laughs> I mean, we, at the top of the episode, we didn't bury the lead here. We're going to be talking sure. about a Sherlock Holmes novel, specifically The Hound of the Baskervilles, um, which was my choice. Uh, and But I'm going to get to my history with the book in a moment. Um, what is yours? And with Holmes and maybe detective stories or mysteries as, as a whole. Hmm, yes. I think... I feel like I have seen some adaptations other than the current current Sherlock, mm-hmm. but I don't recall anything specific. But I'm sure that Hound of the Baskervilles was something that I have actually seen before. I'm also pretty sure that there's a Wishbone adaptation of some sort of Sherlock Holmes story, and I Probably. love me some Wishbone. So you know, just basically adaptations, you know, that aren't. They aren't necessarily staying 100%. Now, I remember growing up that my parents had some sort of subscription, you know, those magazines, and you get you get different things, to audiobook something. And I remember it used to come in this little uh, wooden crate, like a little crate, a mini crate, and then you slide open, and then there are these audio tapes. And I vividly remember some Sherlock Holmes Stories, and I'm pretty sure that one of them was Hound of the Baskervilles. So I think probably the first time that I have had experience with Sherlock Holmes was in audio format, which is ironic because my good friend Tom here checked out the only copy of Hound of the Baskervilles <laughs> in, the in the library system, and so I had to resort to, in fact, an audio book instead. So this is actually, this episode is going to be an interesting social experiment to see, for me anyways, to see if I've lost any details or I missed anything because I listened rather than read. But yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure actually audio drama was the, the first that I ever had experience with Sherlock Holmes. I find it funny that this is the first time this has happened where one of us got the copy from the library before the other. Like, because we, we, we use the same library. Yes, we do. And um, it, I usually they have multiple copies available of stuff, and I think there have been times where the two of us have checked things out at the same time, or one of us was able to check something out, and the other one found a copy in 
I just remember with Rebecca, it just had, there happened to be a copy sitting in the book room of my, of the English department for me. So I didn't have to go to the library. Um, so I just find it funny that this is the first time this actually has happened. I guess it was inevitable, but it took 16 episodes of the show for it to happen. <laughs> yeah. My experience with Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, it's one of those characters that maybe you can relate to this that was like, uh, you knew who he was and you know of like him and Dr. Watson before you even read or saw anything, any story involving him. He's like so part of the cultural lexicon that like, it's almost like you can know who you can, you essentially like know who he is, even though you've never read a story. Mm-hmm. And I think like, you know, I mean, that's up there with characters like, uh, in our in our other in our other podcast lives, like like Batman or Superman or Wonder Woman, I mean, like you know, pe- there are people who are fans of certain superheroes and yet have minimal to no experience with like the actual comic books. Sure, but they love the films or they just love the character, and and so and um, and I think that that can go beyond comics. You can talk about things like Mickey Mouse, and Bugs Bunny, and you know any any other iconic character and and so i think that's with me because my first exposure to mystery is probably scooby-doo mm-hmm. and or the bloodhound gang on the electric company but but i i always knew who holmes was and honestly this is the only holmes novel i've read and the only Holmes story i've read uh I, it's not because i never liked it it's just i was trying to figure this out because i am um, I I've been a like a really voracious reader since I was a kid and I never had anything against mystery cuz I read the Hardy Boys like crazy when I was in the 4th and 5th grade. I was just like I I think I had a few of the books and then I would just check them out of the school library like all the time cuz they had like a wall of Hardy Boys books with the with the light with the blue spines and the you know and everything. And um but at some I think it's at some point in about maybe the seventh or eighth grade, my public library had this great, my public library had a great paperback section. And, um, I was into James Bond at the time and I exhausted like the one novel that they had, which was, I think it was the man with the golden gun. And so it was the only James Bond novel I read as a kid. And then I was, then, um, they had every Star Trek novel that had been published up to that point. So I found I fell down this rabbit hole of science fiction and, and Star Trek, and then eventually Star Wars expanded universe stuff for a little while, in like eighth, ninth, and you know into in, into um, into high school, and mystery as a genre just kind of fell off my radar. So it wasn't anything that I didn't like. So it's, I, I've never really read a lot of Holmes. I was assigned this book in ninth grade, so it it was. Off my, I picked it off the list, the list, the master list that I had made for our, you know, how you have your list and I have my list for the show, and that's how I came to pick it. And um, I, we read two novel, we'd read two mystery novels in ninth grade, and they're really two of the only mystery novels I remember reading when I was a teenager. Uh, this and then Agatha Christie's, uh, and then there were none. And. Um, but I've I've always known who Holmes is, and I've actually only seen one Holmes movie, which is the 1985 movie Young Sherlock Holmes, which was directed, I believe, by Barry Levinson. I can't remember who played Sherlock Holmes. So that's my that's my very kind of very very cursory um, <laughs> experience with Sherlock Holmes. I will recommend to you 
uh, I think it was other. It's maybe just called Holmes. Sir Ian McKellen plays him like as an okay. older gentleman, and that that was really worthwhile because I think some people don't like the um, the um, Iron Man version. <laughs> I'm Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. Yes, some of yeah. those I enjoyed them. I thought they were funny for what they are. But yeah, mm-hmm. if you're looking for more of a serious take and like what mm-hmm. would Sherlock Holmes be like as a retired gentleman, Holmes was was really well done. Let me get into the actual uh, history of this book. Like, you know, a little bit of background on Doyle and, and Holmes. And, and I kept I kept the biography on Doyle to uh, the actual kind of period when he was writing. Uh, the um, the How to the Basketball is kind of like I did with Dickens and uh, A Christmas Carol. So that, uh, so that we don't have to go through kind of like a whole huge thing of his life. Um, and although I will say, I, I want to say that Emily Middleton mentioned that Holmes movie on an episode like a long time ago of like Shortbox Showcase or something. So that's, it's, it does sound familiar. So I'm going to have to check that out. So, so, so props to M for, I, I believe for mentioning that. Okay. So anyway, the background on Holmes and the background on Doyle, at least as far as the Hound of Baskervilles is concerned, the novel was serialized. So it originally pe- appeared in serialized form in the magazine called the strand uh, from 1901 to 1902. And then it was first published as a full length novel in 1902. Uh, it is the third of the full length Sherlock Holmes novels. And it actually marked the return of Doyle to the character after he killed off his famous detective eight years prior in the final problem. Now, continuity-wise, because we're both comics fans, so we're like, wait a second, how can this be? He killed them off. We have another story. Continuity-wise, this does not cause any true issues because it takes place before that story. So, although apparently he brings him back to life at some point, so he, like, essentially... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is an early retcon guy where he kind of retcons the final problem or something. And I, I, I... skim through the Wikipedia page on this, so I don't know the, the exact details, and I'm sure that Alan or Emily can totally tell us what what exactly happens, but this takes place before Holmes' death, obviously. Um, Doyle was inspired to write it after serving in South Africa as a physician at an army hospital during the Second Boer War, and was supposedly inspired by the legend of Richard Cabell, who lived in the late 1600s at Brook Hall in the parish of Buckfastly, Devon, uh, the hall that was the inspiration for Baskerville Hall in the novel. Um, I don't think Richard Cabell has any relation to old or new Cabell Hall at the University of Virginia. Because <laughs> um, that's what I hear about, think about Cabell. Anyway, here's some information about Cabell and Doyle's inspiration for the novel. Uh, and Baskerville Hall from Wikipedia, the source for all things knowledgeable. Squire Richard Cabell lived for hunting, and that was... And what was in those days described as a, quote, monstrously evil man. Um, He gained this reputation for, among other things, immorality and having sold his soul to the devil. Uh, There was a rumor that he had murdered his wife, Elizabeth Fowl, a daughter of Sir Edmund Fowl, first baronet of Falscombe. Uh, on July 5th, 1677, he died and he was laid to rest in the sepulchre. The night of his interment saw a phantom pack of hounds come baying across the moor. So we're back on the moors uh, to howl at his tomb. Uh, from that night on, he could be found leading the phantom pack across the moor, usually on the anniversary of his death. If the pack were not out hunting, 
they could be found ranging up around his grave, howling and shrieking. In an attempt to lay the soul to rest, the villagers built a large building around the tomb, and to be doubly sure, a slab was placed in front of it. Moreover, Devon's folklore includes tales of a fearsome supernatural dog known as the Yeth Hound that Conan Doyle may have heard about. It is believed uh, that Baskerville Hall is based on one of three possible houses on or near Dartmoor, famously Falscombe, in the parish of Ugborough. I hope I'm pronouncing these um, these English countryside names correctly. The seat of the foul baronets, uh, Hayford Hall near Buckfastley, which was owned by John King, who died of, in 1861 of Falscombe, and Brook Hall in the parish of Buckfastley, who is all about two miles east of Hayford, the actual home of Richard Cavill, who is the husband of uh, Elizabeth Fowle. It has also been claimed that Baskerville Hall is based on a property in Mid Wales, built in 1839 by one Thomas Miners Baskerville. Uh, this house was formerly named Clyro Court and was renamed Baskerville Hall toward the end of the last century. Arthur Conan Doyle was apparently a family friend who often stayed there and may have been aware of a local legend of the Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, still other tales claim that Conan Doyle was inspired by his time and holiday in North Norfolk, where the tale of Black Shuck is well known. I didn't look up where that what that was. Um, the pre-Gothic Cromer Hall, where Conan Doyle stayed, also closely resembles Doyle's vivid descriptions of Baskerville Hall. And uh, I looked up Devon. Devon sounded very, very familiar. It's in the kind of the south of England, near the Channel, which is why there are moors. Um, and I was like, that sounds familiar, that sounds familiar. And then I it dawned on me that um, my son's name is Brett. He is named after my maternal grandmother, whose last name was Brett. Now, she was from Newfoundland. But in 1814, my family, that part of the family, emigrated from England to, immigrated from England to Newfoundland. And they were originally from Devon in the south of England. So there's actually a family history connection in some way to the setting of this novel for me. So that my, my, my mother's side of the family is from, is, uh, dates back to England and I, we've traced it back to like the mid-1700s so a little bit of personal trivia there the novel itself uh, should be noted has been adapted into 20 films uh, films 20 times including a 1939 adaptation with Basil Rathbone as Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Watson um, it was also adapted into an episode of the show's Sherlock which stars as we mentioned Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman in 2012 and then the show Elementary which is on CBS at the moment, starring Johnny Lee Miller and Lucy Liu, and that was done in 2016. Any comments before I go into the plot synopsis? None, except you probably did butcher all those names, but hopefully probably. you're Eng- English-splained. Does that count? English-splained <laughs> and someone lets us know how badly it turned out. Yes. Uh, but, you know, I, I feel you because I think I felt like I was messing up some names, too, and I was reading off about Rebecca. Some of them are like crazy. Like, if I wasn't from um, New York mm. and had not never been in around the city, like I wouldn't know that Greenwich is pronounced Greenwich because it's spelled right. Greenwich, you know. And like, um, or like, you know, having friends and family like in the, in New York area, of course. But and then like knowing parts of New England where you have like, you know. Worcester, Massachusetts, and like just the the, the various um, 
mm-hmm. pronunciations of these New England towns. So I think that's where I can hopefully, hopefully I didn't I didn't butcher them too much. Maybe one day we'll do a Russian novel and then we'll pull. Oh my. <laughs> War and Peace. Let's oh, set it for 2020. <laughs> it's somewhere on my to-do list. Oh, that or Anna Karenina. <laughs> those are two oh. that are on my list. So I've read anyway. one of those. Yes. Yeah, I have Anna Karenina. I just have never uh, never read it. Uh, my friend Amanda said that if you that there's 365 chapters, so you could read a chapter a day for a year. I was like, interesting. So, so let's go ahead and get into the plot of The Hound of the Bastardvilles, and then we can go, uh, then we'll have our discussion. So, uh, the novel is narrated in the first person from the point of view of Holmes's sidekick slash partner, Dr. Watson. Um, it opens at Holmes and Watson's detective agency on Baker Street, with Dr. James Mortimer visiting them and requesting that they investigate the death of his friend, Sir Charles Baskerville. The circumstances of his death are not only mysterious, naturally, or it wouldn't be a mystery for Holmes to solve, but they are possibly supernatural. It seems that there has been a curse on the Baskervilles since the English Civil War, when an ancestor of Sir Charles, Hugo Baskerville, supposedly offered his soul to the devil in exchange for help in abducting women. Hugo was allegedly killed by a giant ghostly hound, and this is what Mortimer is convinced killed Sir Charles, as while the coroner's report listed the official cause of death as a heart attack, there were giant paw prints near the body. Holmes meets with the next heir to the Baskerville estate, Sir Henry, who has just returned from Canada. We get a rundown of who is left in the family. There's Sir Charles, Sir Henry, and the estranged brother Roger, who supposedly is dead. He died in South America. Sir Henry has received an ominous message to avoid going to Baskerville Hall, but he decides to move there anyway. While he is in London, he has one of his boots stolen by a man with a beard who appears to be following them and who, according to Mortimer, looks like Mr. Barrymore, the butler at the Baskerville estate. The boot is recovered, but another one of Henry's boots disappears. They try to pursue this lead, and they find the cabbie who had driven the bearded man around. But the cabbie tells them that the bearded man said his name was Sherlock Holmes, which naturally surprises our protagonists. Watson is sent to Devonshire and Baskerville Hall, and while Holmes stays in London to wrap up another case... Watson is to accompany Sir Henry everywhere and not let him out of his sight. When they arrive at Baskerville Hall, they hear that an escaped convict named Selden has gotten loose, and he may be at large in the area. During this time at Baskerville Hall, Watson gets to know Mr. Barrymore further along with his wife, whom he swears he hears crying in the middle of the night, which makes sense because Barrymore and his wife both express a desire to leave Baskerville Hall, although both of them deny that she's been crying in the middle of the night. He also meets two neighbors, Mr. Stapleton and his beautiful sister, Miss Stapleton. Miss Stapleton and Sir Henry will later meet and fall in love with one another, which angers Mr. Stapleton greatly, and we will eventually find out why. And I should note here uh, that there's at least one time by this point where Watson has heard a strange animal noise coming from the moors on the estate grounds. Watson begins to pursue Barrymore as the prime suspect in the murder, especially when he sees him mysteriously lighting a candle in a room of the house. Later, Mrs. Barrymore will confess that Selden, who is the escaped convict mentioned earlier, is actually her brother. 
and she's been sort of helping him out, feeding him food, keeping him from, you know, dying, basically. She he ends up pursuing Selden on the moors one night, and he can't find him, but he also spots another man. Later, they reach an agreement to allow Selden to flee the country. This is him and, and Barrymore. And Barrymore shows Watson the contents of a letter written someone with the initials LL, proving it all comes back to Superman, even though it's 30 years before Superman was written. Asking Charles to meet with the letter writer at the spot where he was killed on the night of his death. The letter did not come from the murderer, but from a Miss Laura Lyons, who wanted to meet with Sir Charles in order to get her to finance her divorce. But she chickened out and she never went to meet him. Watson then tracks down the other man he saw on the moors, and it's Holmes, who's been doing his own investigation, secretly, covertly. He reveals the information that he has discovered. The Stapletons are not brother and sister, but they're actually husband and wife, and Stapleton was having an affair with Laura Lyons, and he proposed to Laura to get her cooperation. It's then when they hear a scream and discover the body of Selden, who had been wearing Sir Henry's clothes. Holmes then heads back to Baskerville Hall and notices the resemblance between Stapleton and Hugo Baskerville. He deduces that Stapleton is actually a long-lost Baskerville family member, and he's trying to off all of his surviving family members so that he can receive the Baskerville fortune. Holmes calls for Inspector Lestrade, and they head to Stapleton's house where he is dining with Sir Henry. Stapleton releases the hound after Sir Henry, but Holmes, Watson, and Lestrade rescue him and kill the hound, which was a mortal but abnormally large dog that had been painted with phosphorus to look ghostly and hellish. They find Miss Stapleton bound and gagged in the house, and then Stapleton apparently dies in an effort to get to a hideout of his in an abandoned mine. They also find the second boot that Sir Henry had lost earlier in the novel. A few weeks later, Watson and Holmes discuss the case. Holmes reveals that Stapleton was Roger Baskerville, who had been living in Costa Rica and was married, but basically had been a fraud and a criminal. Roger had bought the hound and made it look ghostly, then used the stolen boot to give this hound Sir Henry's scent so that the hound would kill him. Selden had died because he had been wearing Sir Henry's clothes, hence you know, because it had, they had the scent on them. And Miss Stapleton had been tied up because she had discovered and disavowed her husband's plot. And with that, the case is closed. So that is the case of The Hound of the Bastionvilles. And I'm going to begin our discussion with the first question we always ask after one of the plot synopses of this show. Stella, did you like this? I did enjoy this. I think it is, it's not... <laughs> it's not... My first mystery novel, but it was really well done, and I wasn't sure what the language was going to be like. And I'm not talking about, you know, swear words and things like that, but just how it was going to be read because, you know, occasionally some novels are hard to slough through. But it was actually really engaging, and I was really attentive and following along the entire time. I actually had the same... Um Fear, yeah, reservation about the language too. Where I was, I was wondering, like you know, because we are we are talking about a, a an older period, and in, 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 you know, I mean, it's not that old, but it's you know, it's a hundred years, hundred fifty years ago. So you're talking about a a time when when the the language and the style of writing was much different. So um, there were a couple of times I might have gotten a little lost, but for the most part, you're right. It it, it really was just 
kind of like right along as, as we went. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed it too. I, I, and the funny thing is, is like I said, I read this in the ninth grade, but I don't remember reading this at all. <laughs> like it was one of those things where like, you know, you read, I guess you read so many books over the course of high school and college and like some of them you remember really well and some of them you don't. Um, and this is just one of the ones that just, like I said, I really think I remember it. I think I just had no opinion on it and did the assignments and then kind of went on my merry way. Um, this time around, I really enjoyed it. I was actually, and I think this comes from watching too much Scooby-Doo. Um, I was actually waiting for like some sort of kind of like the hound wasn't a hound. It was like some sort of like, you know, projection that he was doing. Like, you know, that, that the explanation for the hound was a lot more going to be like a lot more convoluted or complicated, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's basically, this is how old man Weatherby pretended to have the hound, you know, roar every night or something. And like, I was half expecting that, but I think that's because like I said, I've watched a lot of Scooby-Doo in my time. So, um, but I was glad that like when the, when the time came to explain the quote, supernatural stuff, sure. Um, it was a very, just, it was very scientific. And I was just like, okay, yeah, this all makes it like everything in this novel made sense. And, uh, and, and it was enjoyable and it did, it kept me guessing. I mean, when everything was revealed, I was like, oh, of course, you know, like I could see all the pieces and nothing in this came out of completely out of left field in the last act, you know, like, like all of a sudden this person is the murderer and like there was not one single clue as to wait a second, like Stapleton was always kind of like shady it was always it was, it was always kind of like you know it could be him he was mm-hmm. one of the suspects it's mm-hmm. not like all of a sudden it's like mrs white in the conservatory with the lead pipe and you're like wait a second that's not in any of the cards that i had you know so you know or you know the ending of, of another story where it's like all of a sudden yeah this person killed the killed the the dead body and you're like what so that i thought this was uh this was well done. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the the first question I had was, and and this is something, and this is a, uh, and it kind of segues into the second question. The novel is narrated in the first person, and it's narrated in the first person from the point of view of Watson, mm-hmm. as opposed to a third person objective narrator, or. A third person, like um, a third person perspective, that's sympathetic toward like one character, like Watson or Holmes, or having Holmes narrate it. So, how effective is Watson as a narrator, and why isn't Holmes narrating the tale himself? Uh, I I think that Watson is an effective narrator because I think he's more personable than Sherlock Holmes is. So he is able to pick up, I think, on character details that are more more personal than scientific, whereas Sherlock, I think, would make some sort of like very blunt comment and then move on, and it wouldn't be as engaging. And it also works well because of the the feint that F-E-I-N-T that yeah. Sherlock pulled where he quote unquote had business or like another mystery in town to solve. And so he sends Watson on his way and to like record data basically, even though Sherlock lied and was actually 
amongst the moors practically yeah, the entire like time. Yeah, rented a house out there. Or yeah, something. so it pulls. I, I think that was nice because you are getting all these facts and details from Watson, and also as a reader, you are just as tricked as Watson was. So I thought that it was really well done, um, both because I think he just has more personality than Sherlock does, and which I think honestly is probably true of all the adaptations that I've seen, even though like, you know, Sherlock is quirky, but I think generally you probably want to hang out with Watson more than you would Sherlock. Um, and yeah, because, uh, we're like him. So he's in our place and we're tricked just like he was. Yeah. There seems to be this aloofness to Holmes that Holmes, not Holmes, <laughs> Holmes, yo Holmes, uh, to Holmes. Oh my to Sherlock that make you're right makes Watson more personable like he's like the client relations type or he's the he's just he is the one that that um that you think the 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 client whether it be the grieving widow or whoever would feel comforted by and you know, to his credit, he's smart on his own. He's not, it's not like he's, you know, just kind of there just to, you know, run interference with the client while Holmes, like, works his case. But Holmes seems to be this sort of, like, out of touch character mm. that, that he's very distant. And, and then, then he's, um, you know, like, like where, just to bring up Batman, it's like it's like, and this is this is an odd. This is well, because you know, like I said, Bat, if if it's not Scooby Doo, it's Batman is the other detective story that I've often written. You know, when they would write Batman as a detective, because um, I I think I think you and I could agree there are a lot of stories where it's like you know you kind of wish Batman was actually solving a case instead of like you know whatever they have him doing, but um, it's almost like Holmes could be like the Bruce Wayne and 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 Sherlock could be the Batman. Mm. Because like the because Bruce Wayne's like this character that he's created so that he can and in some cases and he has other he has other um, aliases. I've always liked his matches Malone bit, oh, but yes. like you know, so he's got that he's got that really good like he's always had those really good kind of cast he creates and those roles he plays to get to somebody he's trying to help or gets to somebody he's trying to convict or, or whatever, like to get into the case without being Batman all the time, because it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily work sometimes to just be Batman and, and be there. And I feel that, that what Doyle's doing sometimes with Watson and Holmes is that, that on some level he's kind of doing that where like Holmes can't always be there with the client because perhaps maybe hits his reputation or it's just, you know, or whatever, but his presence, like being there all the time would scare the murderer off Mm. and the murderer would get away because the murderer would be like, Oh crap, you know? And, and there's sort of a fault that that way that the murderer or the, the convict or whoever is committing the crime when they only see Watson if they know Watson is working with Holmes, but they don't see Holmes, they can lull themselves into a false sense of security. And maybe, and maybe, and I don't know if this is true in this novel, but maybe somebody who is up against Holmes and Watson, or is the murderer, is a suspect or whatever, takes Watson for granted and thinks they can play Watson because they know they can't play Holmes. So I, I do, I think, I think there's a real, like, kind of a, 
an aspect to Watson that really is necessary because it just makes the story more interesting. And I, I like the point that you make that like seeing things through his eyes, it makes the feint that Holmes pulls like even better because like we're fooled just as the audience is. Because I honestly saw the bit, read the bit about the other person on the moors, and it, at no point was like, oh, that's just Holmes, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I was tricked too. Yeah. So so good good on Doyle because I I like it I like when that happens you know when he doesn't show his hand too uh, too much but I do have a question about the the Holmes versus Watson and um because Watson really does admire his his partner and I was wondering if he admires him too much. Uh, to get a true look at what he is like, you know, is mm. is is Holmes because we're getting Sherlock Holmes through the eyes of Doctor Watson. Is Holmes too much of a superhero? Is he too much of a of an ideal? Um, is he not really human in that way? Is there is there a lack of humanity or something like? I that? have a question. Sure. The uh, before I answer this is I know that in the uh, in the Sherlock adaptation he mm. dabbles with some drug. I don't know if it was cocaine. It may have been something like that. Is that true in the uh, in in the actual novels? Does he does Sherlock do some drugs? I want to say that is true. Okay. Um, and I remember hearing about that for years, way before, like, you know, back when I was a kid. Mm, I just So wondered. here we go. Uh, the Victorian Web. <laughs> Them again? Sherlock Holmes is a cocaine user. And I just, I honestly just just did this. Holmes' recreational use of drugs can be explained. So he used, he... Um, so this is about uh, Sherlock Holmes addictions, and I'm, I'm not going to read the whole site because it's very text heavy. Uh, used occasionally cocaine and morphine to escape, as he said, from the quote dull routine of existence. This was nothing unusual in Victorian times because the sale of opium, laudanum, cocaine, and morphine was legal. Victorian users took these dangerous drugs as self-medication and recreation. Uh, the first wave of cocaine use occurred in the second half of the 19th century, so from about 1860 to 1905. Uh, a great number of cocaine enthusiasts, including scientists and medical practitioners, wrote letters, pamphlets, and essays about the miraculous properties of the divine drug, which excited human imagination and seemed to be a panacea for many ailments, from toothache to hysteria, labor pains, hay fever, and melancholy. Uh, one of the most famous 19th century cocaine enthusiasts was the young Austrian doctor Sigmund Freud who recommended cocaine therapy for various ailments, including anemia, asthma, syphilis, typhus, and even treatment of alcohol and morphine habits. In The Study in Scarlet, the novel which introduced um, the famous consulting detective, uh, Watson is quite concerned about Holmes' use of drugs. And then, um, yeah, so apparently Holmes liked to inject it. And there's a whole thing, if I remember, I will go ahead and... uh, link to this in the show notes because there's a whole thing about his his other uh, dabbles in things like opium smoking tobacco uh, alcohol and um etc so uh so yeah so that's so he did he did he did um he was not like you know we're not talking like you know <laughs> pacino and scarface you know face down sure, at a sure. table full of blow but oh, um 
but we are but we are talking about him dabbling in things, but in a way that apparently was very common among that class of people in uh, in in Victorian times. They're a little snuff. Um, yeah, snuff boxes snuff, or whatever. Yes, there were snuff boxes and things like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, I well, I just wondered. I mean, obviously, this is the only one I've read or at least recall. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what. Watson's reaction would be upon figuring that out or if he did sort of the same thing. Quite honestly, when listening to this, as I said, I may have missed details. I feel like he respected him, but not in like a sycophantic way where he feels like Sherlock Holmes can do no wrong. I almost Mm -hmm. ascribe that tendency towards the police officer that comes. I can't Um. remember. Lestrade. Yes. Be even well, at least in Watson's perspective and how he was describing him of like mm-hmm. I don't know, this facial expression on Lestrade and how he looked at him as if he were a hero. Like it seemed like that was kind of the guy who thought that Sherlock could do no wrong. But I think Watson, I mean Watson even gets upset and annoyed at Sherlock when he finds out that he had been duped and he's you know, did you even get my letters? You told me to be detailed and he was like super frustrated. So I, I feel like he he treats him normally i think that there's an admiration but i think that it's healthy it's not overboard yeah um lestrade had this like um uh, lestrade had this sort of like almost like i'm hanging out with a celebrity type of thing i guess is it's probably the way the way you were describing it which which was which is also my my impression but i had a lot of the same things you were saying where like where he he definitely he definitely admires him and respects him and but he does he does see his defects his flaws at times and and also um but i was just surprised he doesn't question him as much as i think i've gotten used to from watching you know movies mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. television shows with cops you know, where like you know something on the order of like a French Connection or or um, old episodes like NYPD Blue or, or Law and Order and those things where where they'll openly question each other and partners will squabble and things like that and there's there's not a lot of that but then again like I said I'm looking I'm probably looking at too much from a modern perspective and and I'm too kind of um, affected by the by the tropes of modern day police shows and modern day detective those modern day detective shows like when I watch them police procedurals and that sort of thing as opposed to what you would have you know what you would have seen at a novel of this time but uh, but no I think you're right he doesn't he I, but it, I it didn't I did wonder a few times like you know are you is he a little too enamored mm. with with Holmes and I'm sure out there there's like slash fiction. Oh, there always is. Too. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's just like I am sure there are a number of people who think that yes, he's enamored with Holmes, and of course he's in love with him. That's his boo, and and it's just not. It's not an air. That's not a path that I went down. But I, but I could see. I, I will say, I could see where people would draw that conclusion from some of the way he, kind of like you know does does kind of like sit back and just kind of soak in when Holmes, especially when Holmes is like you know going on about whatever he's talking about, whatever he's knowledgeable of, whether it be some sort of subject that he kind of like just knows a lot about or it's the case itself. But I don't think it, it I don't think it makes him a sort of flawless seeming, almost unnecessary character. Like I think it, it I think he, he allows Holmes to be, 
to be human when he has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it does seem now the, the the novel's conceit is that at least at the at the beginning when we get the case is that there's something supernatural going on. Yes. And it is not supernatural. It is literally a dog, a very <laughs> wild, very large dog sure. that is been painted with phosphorus to give it a glow and make it for your host hellish. So there's this. Um, it, it seems that anything supernatural, fantastical in this novel has a rational and even a scientific explanation. Um, is it important that Watson believes the hound to be supernatural and Holmes insists that there's a rational explanation? Um, and how does this reflect the society of the time? Yeah, so <laughs> I think that part of it is, is this the one where what does it say about common folk? Are you combining these? That's the next one. Okay. But yeah, we can do that. I mean, the, the next question I had was, why is it that the common folk seem to be the ones with the most belief in the supernatural, while the people above them in society are more skeptical or don't believe in the hound at all? So we can we can combine the two and have a good conversation about that. <laughs> well, I think a lot of it is because it's, it's almost a judgment on the society that um, they're visiting as well as being surrounded with. And it's interesting that Watson even believes so far in the supernatural event because he, at least from my listening, <laughs> he was <laughs> insulting the people there to a certain extent. Like he even, he doesn't call them savages because I've kind of got the Pocahontas song in my head. But he <laughs> says something about like, they're close to having bows and arrows or like something like that, like living in this mm. country, people like these. So it's almost as if, of course, the country bumpkins would believe in yeah. this. That makes sense. But we civilized people of the city. We don't believe in that sort of thing. So I, I think there is a difference between country and city, which um, – Almost goes back to War of the Worlds, like the different experiences that we saw in London versus uh, the countryside or where the main character was. Mm-hmm. But I think Watson, because he's separated from Sherlock for that amount of time, he's ingratiating himself with the people in the country. He's getting to know them. I think he's sort of lulled into believing that as well. And there's no one – Sherlock's not there to dissuade him from – the observations that he's making. He's not there to take those observations and then put them into like more scientific explanations and say, no, you're wrong. This is really what's happening. So I think that it's perfectly reasonable for Watson, who is on his own, surrounded by all these people who all believe the same thing, to also believe that. Um, and then Sherlock, who just relies on the scientific method and, and like we've talked about, just with his personality is very cut and dry. And, of course, that's nonsensical. None of that stuff could actually happen. There's got to be a reasonable explanation for it. I think it suits the two characters potentially. And then I think it is a, criti- a critique potentially or poking fun uh, at the differences between city life and country life. Watson does allow himself to get a little sucked into the legend, especially after he hears some of the, uh, you know, the hound at night and sure. sort of sees some of the weirder things going on and, and is like, oh, maybe there's something to this. Um, I think I think you're definitely right about that. I think that um, if if we also start to think of Watson almost as a stand-in for the reader as well, even though he's, you know, kind of addressing the reader, mm. um, if Watson on some level is us, 
kind of going along with Holmes and going along with the investigation because we're following him. Like, I think we as normal people, um, you know, who are not like super detectives would at least allow, would at least allow a moment of belief in the supernatural, even if we were originally skeptical about it. Um, you know, because like Holmes always has the rational explanation for it and always figures out that there is a rational explanation for it. And I don't think his skepticism ever actually wavers, mm. uh, from what I can tell. And I'm not saying that as a, as an insult. I'm just trying to say that that's my impression of who Sherlock Holmes is. But, but Watson is more like everybody else where like, you know, he probably is skeptical. And when push comes to shove, he is a very rational, logical person who understands that there's a rational, logical explanation sure. for everything that he's seeing around him. Mm-hmm. But in this sort of time of like distress or whatever is going on here it, it'll waver and it'll be like maybe there's something to this or whatever um I, I think it's also i was also thinking about how like you're in the tail end of this age of invention and discovery and scientific advancement in the late victorian period you know where um, and we talked about this a little bit with War of the Worlds, like you know um, how uh, Wells was definitely influenced by Darwin, and so is Doyle bringing? And I was like, oh, is Doyle doing this whole there's a scientific explanation for everything because he's bringing in the fact that the culture, of the time, everything was like you know we'd have start having like these expos and world's fairs and things, and there's all of this like whiz, it would become eventually like whiz bang science, you know. And um, and the idea that that ghosts and the supernatural were were left to um, days gone by in children's tales, you know that the, like you know ra- no rational adult of any education would believe that a g- 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 ghost exists. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, yeah. Dear. So you know, I mean, you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. you know, so I, I think you're right. I, and and um, and it is the sort of the bumpkin the redneck, the, you know, the, the, the Cletus, you know, <laughs> hey, Lurleen, you know, that like, is that's going to be like, you know, kind of scared out of his mind because like, you know, that they believe the legend of the ghost because the legend of the hound had existed for like 200 years at this point mm. or 300 years at this point. So, um, and, uh, and we, I mean, we've always seen it. This it's, it's like, it's like Doyle is setting up so many chirps for so many later types of mystery or horror, um, movies later on. Like the whole idea of like, here's this urban legend surrounding this town or this, this place. And, um, you know, then we're going to have the movie where somebody tries to solve it and you've got somebody like the Holmes type who's like always skeptical and always has a rational explanation, except in that version of the movie, which would have been, you know, there, the urban legend is actually, oh my God, it's true. And it's actually a ghost or something. Mm-hmm. So, um, but Doyle, Doyle doesn't go down that road. Actually, I'm glad that Doyle doesn't go down that road. I like the fact that there is that everything falls into place at the end like this. Mm-hmm. It's like everything's wrapped up in a nice little package. So, but what do you think? Is, is, is he, is he working off the, that whole age of science, you know, the telephone, the telegraph, the phonograph, the motion picture, like all these things that are the more, you know, all these things that are being invented. And, and this is the age of like British imperialism. And you're know, like, you know, just this sort of, 
and, and Holmes is in a position in society where he would have really observed that mm. and and known of it where this the commoner might know it but at the same time like you know might as well just kind of be in this insulated little world I mean am I am I completely off there or what's your no I I agree with you I think perhaps we see we don't see as much technology here mm-hmm. um, you know it's not as if there was some sort of sound machine making the the barking mm-hmm. noises for for the <laughs> yeah, dog, like I said, which, with like Scooby Doo. Yeah, 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 which we've seen before. But but I think that is something certainly that is that is pushing uh, Doyle in in what he's doing. Yeah, I also feel like it's he's almost playing against the the gothic horrors. You know, or there's something mysterious going on, but oftentimes mm-hmm. it's solved at the end. You know, Rebecca, is there a yeah. is there a ghost haunting? But actually, there's a reasonable explanation. So I think he he's sort of mixing genres to a certain extent. Yeah, and um, Edgar Allan Poe, who is credited for being one of the kind of grandfathers of the modern detective story along with Doyle you know like the kind of like where Poe Poe would do a lot of very gothic elements in a lot of his stories and things but there was always something that was actually happening as opposed mm. to you know like the telltale heart sure yeah you know there was seniors beating and there's like you know something beneath the floorboards and like you know I mean and, and things like that so you're like I, I saw I also saw Doyle kind of like Pulling from those Gothic influences, mm-hmm. which um, which would have been an earlier period in the 19th century, but but definitely definitely working here. Um, I can see how I can also see this is kind of a little bit of a tangent here, but I can also see how this was serialized. Like it, they said it was serialized in the Strand. I'm like, oh yeah, like I could see where they would break, and it would be. It's not completely episodic in nature, but I can definitely see how mm-hmm. how how he's building tension throughout the entire novel. And if you're reading this, I don't know. I'm just going to assume a strand was weekly or something. So if you're reading this like week to week or month to month, just as we do with comics, you're getting just enough to keep you going and keep you going. So I think he did that really, really effectively. Absolutely. Um, did you figure out the murderer before the murderer was revealed? And how good do you think Doyle was at disguising his culprit as well as his, um, I'm going to skip a little bit and add, as well as his red herring, because Selden's the red herring in the novel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, how good is he at this? I didn't think it was Selden. I didn't think it was the escaped convict, because I thought it was too obvious, mm-hmm. which is the reason why. But I didn't, I, I think what's amazing about this tale, this story, is that every detail is used and comes back. Um, the boot, for instance, yeah. had me scratching my head. I was like, yeah. what in the world does this boot have to do with anything? And then it turned into two boots. It was very confusing. So and, then it, and then you're like, oh, this is just, is this going to be followed up on? If it's not, it's a plot hole. Sure, sure. It's got to be not. your Chekhov's yeah. gun, right? And then the, the, um, the bog that he – because like he, he's – his hideout – is like an abandoned mine that's in a bog, and they walk along the bog, and the bog, or whatever it is, I, I might be using the wrong word here, it's almost like a swamp. Like, I don't want to say quicksand, but it's like, you know, sure. somebody says, you, like, you go in there, and you're not coming out. Yeah. It's just it's just not ground that you on which you want to tread, and that's where he's got his little his little hide, uh, safe house right. hideaway, and, and he ends up, um, they think he, he dies by, like, kind of falling in 
falling into them or something. Yeah, because the pathway was not lit, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, all, all these details, man. The the wit, the LL, you know, Lucy Lane and <laughs> yeah, I was gonna and uh, Lana <laughs> Lane and Lex Luthor, all <laughs> those LLs. Lane, yeah, I was yeah. like, what Lori is going Lamaris. on? I know, goodness gracious. Um, so I didn't think it was the convict. I, I just thought that that was too obvious for one, but I wasn't really sure what part he played, and I was shocked to to find out that it was the housekeeper's brother and sort of that mm-hmm. that relation. I thought that it did have something to do with the actual bad guy at the end, Stapleton, if only because – like I didn't trust him. I didn't know – really like the end thing and an actual hound and everything because i was trying to remember via the adaptations what actually happened but something just fell off about him mainly in the way that come to find his wife uh pretending to be his sister acted around him um and i wasn't sure if she was in on it because of that whole really weird thing where she ran up to watson and said you need to leave you need to she's confusing him for henry so i I mean, you know, the easy answer is no, I didn't. I had a sneaking suspicion Stapleton had something to do with it, but I wasn't because I just didn't trust him. But I thought that it was just deftly written. All these details that I could not make heads nor tails uh, all come together at the end. And again, I will say the boots, the boots are the things that really threw me off. Yeah, and I have the same thing. Like, I I like that. I liked that Selden was there almost to throw, to try to throw us off. And if he wasn't like us, if, if he wasn't using Selden, Selden completely as a red herring, mm. as in like we were going to think he was the murderer because even like, we were both, I was the same, was like, that's ah, too obvious. But having that little bit of a subplot of like Watson helping them out and they're going to give him the clothes and they're trying to like it distracted us enough to th- kind of throw us off the scent of, of who the killer might be and Stapleton was always a shady character and I didn't see the when they revealed that he was Roger uh, Baskerville I went of course he's Roger Baskerville like you know that to me was and it and, and I didn't say that in a, in a sort of like oh my god this is so like cliche sort of way sure. because this is where that cliche comes from. Like, you know, I, I went in fully acknowledging that I'm reading one of kind of a, a very, of, of the beginnings of a genre that we're used to. So anytime you see in a show where it's like, you know, Hey, this guy is actually this person. It dates back to things like Sherlock Holmes. So I'm not going to sit there and be all like snarky about it. Like, you yeah, of course he did that because this is where this, you know, this is where this started. Um, but I was like, oh, of course he is. Like, you know, it, it, it's, you're right. All the little details started to fall into place. And, um, but I did not see the whole, they're actually husband and wife. Yes. Yeah. Weird. And, and he's, um, and the way he treats her, which, which they find her tied up at the end. And, um, she's badly injured. And I'm like, Oh, so he's a murderer, he's a polygamist, and he's an abuser. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish the Hound had gotten this guy. <laughs> mm, yeah. You know, I mean, he just kind of disappears, and you're assuming that he just kind of felt his death or something. 
But it's just like, you know, uh, he, he makes, in my opinion, it makes for a de- halfway decent villain. It's like, you know, sure. it's, not a direct, it's not a direct villain, but it's just like, yeah, this guy's scum. Yeah. But, um, I mean, does, does, does that, um, would you have rathered him get some sort of better comeuppance <laughs> at the end rather than running away? And, and, and they're like, yeah, he's probably dead. I wish that we actually would see it because, you know, Mm -hmm. in cartoons and things and comics, too, you know, if you don't see the body and Game of Thrones, if you don't see the body, then chances are the person might not be dead. And even if you do see the body, (laughs) they might resurrect. Chances are they might come back. Be dropped in a Lazarus pit. And if it's Jean Grey, it might be five or six times. Sure. But no, you're right. You're right. You're yeah. totally right. And uh, and and that's I think us conditioned to that. Like whereas I think a reader of this novel would be like, yeah, he's dead. Mm. But I, I'm the same way. I'm there's I th- if there's one flaw in the novel for me, it's the fact that oh, we didn't see him get his like you know you wanted a gunshot, you wanted or him to be arrested, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you kids. Um. So. Uh, so yeah, I, I, that was I, like I said. If, if I think there's one flaw in the novel, it's the fact that he. I, I did want to see him. I wanted to see him get it, and and he did it, especially especially because he's he's abusive. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's got her tied up, and he's obviously beating her, and it's just yeah. like I, I like no, you you need like she needs to shoot you. You know, <laughs> like. Like, you know, they're, they're questioning him all of a sudden. Like, he slumps over. There's a gunshot. She's standing there. Like, and maybe I've seen too many film noir movies. You know, like, you know, like, she's standing there and the gun's smoking. And it's like, you know, I got you, you bastard, or something like that. Like, I was kind of hoping for a moment like that, and we didn't get it. Mm. But then again, it might be my being affected by, you know, just other things I've seen. Is the setting important? So, once again, we are on Moore's. English novelists love Moors. They sure do. Um, we're on the Moors, and we have Baskerville Hall. So they, the English novelists love old mansions, and they love Moors. And we have an old mansion, and we have a Moor. Um, would this have worked if it were set in London? No. Okay, why not? I think... I agree with you, but I want your... Yeah, I think... More. There's just not an eerie tone in London. Now, I'm saying this from some, like, a third-party person who has absolutely no... What is that quote from <laughs> She's the Man? As a third person <laughs> who has absolutely has no... no... I can't remember no, what she says. The, uh, um, the objective, third yes, party yes, has yes. absolutely no... They were, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's such a good line. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, someone who's not been to London, but I just don't know, besides London fog, I guess, that it would be as creepy but now i'm thinking about jack the river and how things can in fact be menacing over in london there but i just don't you know with the dog and everything i just think it would feel odd because i think the bog the moors just having this living breathing thing compared to having it being cold and asphalt i think it just really fits well over in uh where they are and I think also the people wouldn't be as again I, th- I, th- I think there's just this distinction between these country bumpkins as I'm calling them and their belief in what's going on versus the sophisticated city 
slickers. And I, yeah. I just don't know if they would go along with it. I think the whole nature of it would, would very likely change. And then, of course, you have, I don't think you would have some of these people playing any role. I, I think that the, our convict, probably the dumbest thing he could possibly think of would be to run into a city where there are cops going to be strolling everywhere. So, you know, that part wouldn't work out. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think the just the whole nature of it would change. I don't think it would work. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, and and you mentioned Jack the Ripper, and I was thinking of that too. But I was like, but Ripper was the Ripper was killing prostitutes in alleys, yeah. and so he's among the seedy underbelly sure. of of society. Um, if it was just a, a spectral hound walking around the streets of London, there, I just I think just. I think there's too many people in a city. Sure. Yeah. And there, there's a sparse, also a sparser population. And you're right, kind of a dumber population. You're like the kind of country bumpkin character works there. Um, and there are plenty of people in the city who would have been of lower class and superstitious and what have you. But too many, too many to debunk the whole idea of the hound right away. And you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that that Stapleton would have been able to find a way to hide in the city, and it would have made for a really good chase scene or something like that. But the other thing is, is like you know, I'm trying to think of of ghost stories like this, supernatural ghost detective stories like this that really, really work well in cities. And I, I can't really think of a lot of them. There, they usually are places that are old. And with a city like London in Victorian in the Victorian age, even though London is a very old city, it's an ancient city. You know, it dates back to like Roman times, right? But this is this is Victorian London. This is Victor, this is London and the site. This is London when everything is new again. You know, right? So the idea that you have an old old building. Because Baskerville Hall is a few hundred years old, and an old, old building with an old legend, it doesn't translate well to the, the view of the city at the time. And um, whereas, like, of all things, like Ghostbusters, the original Ghostbusters, it's like the 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 building that was the crux for all the supernatural activity was this old building that had been built, like you know. Back around probably like around the time of the uh, of of or the early 20th century and stuff like that. So like that is a time when you have a city that acknowledges its age instead of is just like no no we're not old we're new and everything. So um, but I think that you think out in the country and you think these great estates and this legacy of family and and the sort of on that side and then this sort of like the oldness and the ancient the moors and, and all that I, th- I think you're right it, it, it the setting is really really important because of the way the legend has been set up mm-hmm. do you think that um stapleton's a worthy nemesis or is is that just not applicable here i know that he's got and holmes has like holmes has his sure with moriarty Luther, he's yeah. got moriarty but um, why wouldn't but it be applicable I, I know. I mean, like, is 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 Stapleton a villain here, or is is this just a is this a, like a more of a who? Oh, okay. Straight up, who done it? Uh, yeah, I what, guess it's just. Take? I don't think he could be, you know, the Green Goblin or Venom or you know, mm-hmm. to to the. Well, that was just Spider Man, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's not I, I the arch nemesis. The arch nemesis. He, yeah. you know, it. He leads Holmes a little bit on a chase. He leads Watson a bit on a chase. I think. Uh, a villain um, he's definitely a villain 
But I think, you know, there are different layers to villainy, <laughs> depending on how e- easily they're taken out. And, uh, oh, if we were to give them a ranking, as they do sometimes with, with uh, vi- um, comic book villains, maybe he'd be, hmm, a B, B or C lister. Okay. I'd say mid B, mid B range. Yeah, yeah because yeah, that, that, you know, that sounds he's about right. not the end all and be all. He, but you know, he, he's got Sherlock Holmes working a little bit for it. And a guy like and a B list villain is a is good for the occasional story, but not for like showing up all the time. Hmm. Like the more you use a B, the more you use a, a villain of that level, the less interesting they become. Hmm. Kind of like, um, kind of like Craven. Oh, there's only like so many. How many times you're gonna have Craven do the try to do the same thing, and then eventually, like you know, the story where Craven meets his end is the one that a lot of people remember. You know, like so the less like less is more with a villain like this. That's um, Rachel Ghoul for me. I think you're right. I'm getting a little worn out. Kind of like if you keep the villain off the table, people are going to want to see the villain. So, yeah. So, uh, the last question we have, and I th- like I said, I think this is your question. You can scratch it. No, I like it. Oh. I, just wanted to, I, was, I looked at it. I was like, I'm reading this question. I'm like, did I write this? I can have written this question, this phrase this well. Um, Sherlock Holmes is one of the few fictional characters so internationally famous that even before readers encounter the Holmes stories, they're already familiar with The Great Detective. Which is something that I actually mentioned at the top of the show when I was talking about kind of my um, my background, my origin with Holmes. After reading The How to the Baskervilles, how would you answer the question, who is Holmes? Mm. Um, would you like me to take it first? And yeah, then, please. Since you created a um, I'm not entirely sure. I, I, I think he's... Um, I want to say I don't want to use the word superhero because it's it's kind of like I don't know that's it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of tired but there's sort of this there's almost like a mystery about him mm. and and he's he's mysterious in a way but he is definitely like um I like this character in that I want to see this guy get challenged mm-hmm. Because I want to see how he's gonna solve the case. It's like it, it's like watching someone. It's essentially like watching like a really good artist or somebody who's just really, really incredibly good at what they do. And you want to keep. And in his case, it's problem solving, right? And you want to like you want to see people throw more and more complicated problems at him because you just love watching how he works. In the same way, like you want to see an artist draw more and more different things, or a musician compose things, and, and what can he do, or what can she do that's more complicated, or or whatever, um, because the work itself is just fascinating to watch, and that's what I find interesting about this here. Like, I know I said it was kind of a flaw in the novel that that um, uh, Staple didn't really get his, or we didn't see it. But at the same time, that's a flaw that you can say, oh, like, whatever. I loved watching these two guys work so much, you know? 
It's like they put. It's like the like with James Bond. They put James Bond in like this crazy trap because you just want to see how he gets out of it. You know he's going to get out of it. You know, the same thing with Batman. You know Batman's going to get the Joker, but you want to see how it happened. Sure. You're like so that that's that's the beauty of of something like Holmes. You know Holmes is going to solve this case, but you're like you're hanging on because it's how and 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 I think that's what it is. Holmes is this master of his craft and. That's what makes him a fascinating character. I hope I answered the question. I think so, yeah. I also see – I'm not going to repeat the stuff that you said because I think that was lovely. But I also feel like he's pretty detached as a human being. I think mm-hmm. – um, I, I can't really suss out his relationship with Watson in this – in just one novel. I think that that's too hard potentially. I think maybe he does see him as a friend, but I just wonder like how intimate of a friend – he actually is, and I, I'm not talking homoerotic here, but you know, no, actually, I, I, how close—how exactly okay, close a friendship do they actually have? But I think you know, he doesn't get personally involved in his cases. I think they're just cases. It's just work for him. He doesn't necessarily have an emotional attachment to any of the people involved. And the reason why I say that is because. Number one, I think Watson is like the hearts of the duo and, and Sherlock is, is the head. And so that's why I think he sent Watson off to do his little capering because he was able to, yeah. I think, get more out of it because he was able to – he knew that he'd be able to gather intel from like relationships and, and being able to relate to those people. The other reason why I say that is because at the very end when – Apparently, Sherlock just went off, solved the mystery, but didn't really say how he solved it. He was just like, yep, it was this guy, and then it ended. And then in a nice little epilogue-esque area, Watson and – I guess it was Henry, right? Came back and asked, so are you going to tell us now? And it had been a couple mm. months. <laughs> it had been a couple months, I think, and Sherlock – basically forgot about it he said okay let me think about this because he had been on cases so it shows that you know once he's done with the case he just moves on to the next one and all his focus goes in there and he just forgets he plum forgets about whatever else happens so he's like scratching his head and everything so i think like as a human being he's he's pretty detached and he's just yeah scientific and sort of a walking brain almost um but uh yeah he's really interesting and it's interesting to follow his logic and and see how he comes up with all of this stuff and you're absolutely right you want to see him be challenged because i think that's the conflict that you want to read from these books but he's he's an intriguing character but i don't know how much depth there really is to him compared to other characters that we've talked about that are really well-rounded yeah, that is a really interesting and I, I agree with you on that and i was i was wondering actually when you were talking about how he's detached and what is his relationship with um, Watson and I just started thinking of Scrooge and Marley and how like there's that detachment that existed in when Marley was still alive you know that you know and even Marley's ghost acknowledges it in the sense like you know you've, you've let all your relationships go but at the same time that that's a cautionary tale about <laughs> sure and, 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 and in this case with, with, with Holmes it's um, it's like a personality tick or personality trait. And you, I do wonder, like, you know, is he too detached as a person and he's so focused on the work? And I think that you're right. There isn't a whole lot of depth to him. But at the same time, Doyle, I think, does make up for that by giving Watson a lot of depth. 
and uh, and Watson is very very identifiable character. You know, like we can identify with him in a way. So in that way, um, he's he's more rounded out. But at the same time, um, Holmes doesn't necessarily always need to be rounded out if we just want to watch him do his work mm-hmm. and solve his case. You know, um, and uh, so I, I think I think it's really effective. Would you teach this? This is one of the last. This is always the last question we have before we go into feedback, and we're about to go into feedback. So, is this a novel that you would teach to to middle or high school students? I wouldn't. I think, um, yeah. I just don't know that I could find necessarily a place for it. I don't know. Besides being fun, um, how much we could potentially discuss, or like how I could tie it to a unit. Um, I mean, I guess you could connect it with, with scientific methods, sort of, um, or, you know, if you were doing Rebecca, have maybe a section from this, you know, some sort of paired up yeah, with yeah. the gothic horror. But I think it'd be most engaging and interesting if you were, you know, in a, <laughs> a detective school. That's probably not what they're called. But you're training, you know, to become a police officer or a detective. I think reading mm-hmm. these or being assigned one of them and, and talking about that would be pretty interesting, but high school, I don't think so. I think it, like I said, I was assigned this in high school. I can see why. I think this works if you want to take a group of students and you really want to get down to the intricacies of plot. Um, I think because of plot and detail of plot is so important to this novel and talking about things like plot holes and why you have certain elements in a novel, I think it would be a really, really good book to use for it. Symbolism, metaphor, allusion, analogy, overall theme about humanity and human nature, aside from like looking at and the historical context of like science and and um, perhaps a, a lesson about greed and, and what people will do in order to get what they think is theirs. You know, the sort of like, I'm going to off everybody around me because it's that fortune is mine, you know, that sort of thing. That could possibly be there. But I think this is a really, really good plot-driven novel that um, that I think would be – it would be a nice breather mm, sure. between other works. Um, the, the frustrating thing is, is that I think like, I, I think of, I, I teach, I teach a number of kids. I teach a lot of kids who are of varying levels. I teach a number of kids who are low level readers, you know, I mean, they, and I, and I looked at this and I was reading this and I'm like, it's frustrating because if you explain the plot to the kids, they'd be like, oh, that sounds really cool. You know, there's this mystery about this hound that they think is killing people mm. and Sherlock Holmes goes in and he figures it all out and they but if you were to put this novel in front of them, they wouldn't like it because I think sometimes the language does get in the way. Like, you know, and I think that's the frustrating thing with like really good novels like this, where you have to find maybe a more modern equivalent of something like this to, to show somebody who is not a reader or who is reading, who struggles with reading because the language will get in the way of them really understanding what is actually going on, like literal reading comprehension issues. Um, but like to, uh, to a slightly more advanced level of class, I'd be like, yeah, let's look at this instead of something like, I don't know, we've always, a lot of times in ninth grade teachers use like the most dangerous game or some other short story to do plot. And it's like, no, let's, let's walk through this novel together. Let's see what's there. So I think I would, I would teach it on some level, but I don't think it's anything I'm going to use anytime soon. I will say that this kind of makes me want to check out other mystery writers, um, I might pick up an Agatha Christie, um, and I and I'm like I'm, I might want to pick up like a Raymond Chandler, like the Malsey's Falcon or, or something like that, because um, if there's a detective 
type that I really like. It's that sort of detective type. It's sort of 40s, 50s era, you know, hard-boiled cop detective stories. So I might, I might check out some stuff beyond, beyond that when I'm done reading other, uh, other books for other stuff. So, all right. Um, we have some feedback. Um, we had a, uh, a back and forth with, uh, our scholastic book buddy, um, Robert Ward, uh, about a Christmas Carol. And this was over Facebook. We didn't get any emails this month, at least as, at least when the last time I checked it. Um, so, uh, this is, this is what we had. He, uh, he said first in 1972, a Christmas Carol won to date the only Academy Award the story has ever won. It was directed by Richard Williams, who would go on to be the animation director on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, this animated short first aired on TV before being so well received that it would get a theatrical run and it was nominated. The story goes that the outrage was so great it resulted in the rule that productions could not be nominated if it aired first on television. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, then he had another comment. He said that um, about his email that we read in the last episode, I think it was the last episode or two episodes ago, I regret that my email came off as having to defend Jane Eyre. Uh, while I, like Tom, um, have serious issues with the romance, I would like to think that I would be more enlightened as to why the romance works between the two. I anxiously await the coverage regardless. <sighs> Um, also, I wasn't going to say anything, but I once watched Gone with the Wind when covered. I have no plans to rewatch it or read it, as unlike Jane Eyre, I loathe that film with every fiber in my Dear. body. Um, I have seen, I think I mentioned when you mentioned Gone yeah. with the Wind, I've seen like the famous scenes from that sure. movie, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a book that I've ever really wanted to read, mainly because... Yeah, just... <laughs> It's it's just not because because I you know just for for a lot of different reasons so we're not going to get into, um, but you know if presented with a challenge to read it I'll read it. Um, this is where after he had made the comment about um, that that's where I came in with the comment on Facebook that I just said that I've only seen the very few famous you know frankly Scarlet I don't give a damn sure. Sal shall rise again the scene with all the bodies and the whatever. Uh, and then Robert replied, um, I saw it only once. It was one of those fan, uh, phantom events and surprising for the area, a packed house. If I had to say, uh, it was at least 98% women. I want to stop this sexist idea I have of something being, quote, for women. So in other words, like, Gone with the yeah. Wind is a woman's novel. It's a woman's sure. film. Like, you know, uh, men don't see this. And I hope I could see the appeal. I can feel sympathy for a strong-willed woman being held back by societal norms, but it just graded me something awful. If Stella achieves in providing why I should buy into how Jane Eyre could Roch- love Rochester so much, I will be give her the benefit of the doubt and listen to the gone, to a Gone with the Wind episode. But at the moment, I'm dubious if anyone can convince me making that episode seem not worth the personal time and effort. And that was that was our back and forth with Robert on Facebook. So thank you, like and and I enjoy the back and forths on Facebook and um, and I enjoy the emails. So please keep them coming. Um, I also want to give out some some um, shout outs too. Gene Hendricks, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Chris, uh, who's the guy who does, and I can't remember his last name, he does the Batman 66 reviews on your show. Mm-hmm. What's his last name? Mm-hmm. Carnes? Yes. So like Kim Carnes? I don't know who that is. 
She sang Betty Davis Eyes. I don't know what that is. Okay, it's a song from the 80s. Um, so Chris Carnes. <laughs> I was uh, born Ange, in the late 80s, sir. <laughs> you were born in the mid 80s. Ange and Keith G. Baker, all of us who gave us uh, likes on Twitter. Um, so, uh, and, and our Twitter feed, by the way, at Rec Reading Cast, R E Q R E A D I N G Cast. Um, and you can eat and, uh, and don't forget, you know, the Facebook page and emails and stuff, keep them coming. Um, this is, this is a section of the show that we both enjoy interacting with. Do you have any comments about what Robert had to say or any of that? Yeah, you know, I, I feel bad because it's hard for me to explain why I think Jane and Edward deserve to be together. And, you know, it just comes down to the fact that do you like Jane or not? I read the novel because, I very much love Jane's character, and so I, I just get so engrossed in it that uh, basically I'm, I'm feeling what she's feeling. I I can't explain it. I can't explain it. I, you know, it's, I'm going to be saying the same things that I said before. As for Gone with the Wind, which happens to be also my favorite novel, I I love that just as much as Jane Eyre because Scarlett O'Hara, while she certainly has her flaws, I will not you know say that she's a perfect person is a really strong character and all the stuff that she is able to to go through and persevere through i think is uh is pretty amazing i think you know men have a lot to potentially watch or read about with gone with the wind yes it's female led but i mean who is more of a manly man than clark gable a.k.a. Rhett Butler. So I, I think there's certainly stuff to, to deal with there. Plus there's war, and every gentleman likes war, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I mean, those are the only things. I'm sorry that everyone's poo-pooing on the, the stuff that I like. I, I Like I said, I've been um, hesitant for various reasons to even pick up the book. <gasps> Um, it's the movie is something that I'm like, it's one of those that I should see this full movie at some mm. point, mainly because I like movies, sure. you know, and it's, I like old movies and like, you know, it's just kind of a, give it a, give it a try. Kind of like, you know, the Godfather's kind of in that category sure. for me where it was like, you know, I have this, I should give it a try. I hear a lot about it. I liked it. So uh, maybe one day I will sit down and, and set aside the like three or four hours that, that it takes. I think it's it's a long movie. It's like three or four hours. Yes. Um, so, and then maybe the book sometime if it's assigned. Um, <laughs> speaking of assignments, uh, we are hitting the end of the episode here. It's a little bit shorter than usual, but um, like we said, yeah, I thought we got a good discussion out of this, and 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 uh, it was kind of nice to do a novel like this for uh, after a few that have been, um, you know that have had some serious heft to them. What will we be reading for March? Mm, yes. March is an auspicious month. Someone that means a lot to me was unfortunately stabbed several times in the year 44 BC or BCE, depending on how you like to do your dating system. And unfortunately that person was killed on the eyes of March. And so that is why for our March reading book, we will be <laughs> engaging <laughs> In our first Shakespeare, it is Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare. Cry havoc! And release. And let's lift the dogs of war. 
Oh, yes. I'm very familiar with Julius Caesar. This is on my list, too, actually. I read this in 10th grade. So, um, come back in about a month. Um, and I think... Let me look at my calendar. Usually we release this on a thir- on a, th- on a Tuesday. Yeah? You're going right? to try to release it on the Ides of March? Well, this would come out on the 13th, but no. For, because it's Julius Caesar, That's this episode, it. the next episode, will drop on the Ides of March. So beware the Ides of March and listen to us <laughs> talk oh, about Julius Caesar. So and and don't forget to leave us some some feedback. This we honestly like those of you guys in the audience who are are big homeless people, and neither of us are like huge homeless. I thought you said homeless people. You people in the audience are big homeless people. Yeah, no. Although you got your the homesians, I guess they would call themselves. Um, Please email in about like. Even if you don't want to talk about what we had to say about the novel, like your thoughts yeah. on the novel and things like that, just kind of like how Robert does and, and how or um, favorite favorite stories, yeah, favorite stories and stuff like that. Because um, you know that's part of the fun of, of us doing this show is that we get to hear about people's experiences with, with certain books or um, with certain characters. And um, I thought we gave it a fair shake, considering the two of us don't have a ton of experience with the character, yeah. but we both uh, we both seem to like it. So. So until next time, keep the emails, the shout-outs, the Facebook things, the iTunes reviews, if you if you can spare the time uh, coming. And uh, as always, thanks for listening and take care. And if you're walking in the woods and you see giant poop that seems like it may be from a dog, don't go in the dark bog area. Avoid it. <laughs> I know. I know it is. Goodbye. And knowing this half the G.I. Joe. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two that's two true freaks if you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode follow us on facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with tom and stella if you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com we will read every email we get on future episodes We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode, or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.